Hey, go ahead and make yourselves at home. Thank you. Thanks, man. Go ahead and make yourselves comfortable. It's good to see you. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. I get to teach today. I'm real excited about that. Um, We're going through the book of Galatians. If this is your first or second or third time coming, we're working our way through it and we start chapter 2 today. So if you have a Bible or an app, go ahead and flip to Galatians 2. Um, And the first part of that chapter is going to do all the heavy lifting and show us a clear picture of what God has done for us in Jesus. And it is a tough passage. Um, I'm going to do the best I can with it. Uh, I don't know if any... Raise your hand if you do a lot of flying in airplanes. Anyone in and out of airports? It's not like I'm important or anything, but I've been doing a lot of flying lately. Um, I've probably been on over 100 flights in my lifetime. And the more I fly, (laughs) the more I realize that I am probably the perfect guy to sit next to on a plane. Does that sound cocky? I'm the guy that you wish for. I'm the guy that you hope sits down next to you on those flights because I'll sit down and look at you. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Doing good. And that's about it. That's about all I'm going to do, man. I'm going to let you play Candy Crush and look at Sky Mall. I'm going to read a little bit, snooze a little bit, chill out. I'm not going to be in your face or anything like that. I know that's wrong. I know pastors are supposed to preach to everybody they sit next to on a plane. Um, And sometimes I do, but I like to chill out. And I like to sit next to people that chill out too, right? In fact, it starts early for me. It starts in the boarding area. I start scoping people. (laughs) Any of y'all do this? And you start wondering, is that going to be the one that ruins my day? Is that going to be the one that sits down right next to me? And I start praying. Oh, Jesus. Oh, God in heaven. You know, anybody but that person right there. Anybody but that person. And these four over here in the row behind me. Anybody but that loud family right there. And that person that just got off the phone call. I want to sit next to them either. And I start going through the people. And I know that sounds horrible. It sounds like I hate people, but I don't. I just like my bubble, right? I pulled this picture up earlier. You see the the guy in the bottom right-hand corner turned sideways? He's breaking my rule. You see that? He's facing the wrong way. The guy with the hand on his face next to him, that's me, right? I have an eyes forward rule. Eyes forward in the plane. (laughs) It's not that I don't like people. It's just that people are a lot of work. They're a lot of work, right? Um, I'm becoming more introverted as I grow older, as I calcify I'm becoming to where I'm not so into having conversations with every single person I bump into. Um, Maybe some of you are like that. Anybody in here like that? Yeah? Wouldn't it be nice if we could communicate with each other without the added burden and trouble of talking? Wouldn't it be nice if we could just, you know what I'm saying? Just get it. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just accidentally make close friends? If we could just accidentally make good friends and there's no tension in the relationship and there's no problems, it just happens. It's like magic. It just magically happens. Wouldn't it be nice if we could grow without other people being all involved? You know? It's like a little island. A little island unto ourselves where we just grow and we sprout and we develop and we mature without anyone touching us, without anyone being in our lives. I mean, to me, that sounds pretty nice. It sounds pretty good to me. Y'all are thinking, this guy shouldn't be a pastor. 
But don't judge me too quickly, because I think some of you are right there with me, and I think this passage will expose us all a little bit. In this odd passage today, we get to see the church in action. It's moving, all right? It's in deliberate motion, and we see the church relating not just to God, but to each other horizontally, on the horizontal plane. We get to see a lot of that. It's good for me, because I see Paul showing us that we cannot do life well accidentally. That's a problem for me, because I like to live an accidental life like Forrest Gump. I just want to walk around and have good things happen around me without being deliberate and without having any intention. I don't want intentionality. I just want good things to happen. And Paul shows us in this passage we're about to read that a gospel-transformed life is a very intentional life. That a redeemed, a recovered life is a life of deliberate action, deliberate relationship back and forth between each other. Think about it. When we become Christians... When God finds us misbehaving, because that's how the gospel finds us, it changes us. I mean, it changes the way we think, it changes the way we talk, the way we see God, the way we see ourselves, the way we spend our time, our money, it, it changes us. But it also, it doesn't just find us misbehaving, it finds us being accidental as well. It finds us in this place where it's very rough for us to invest in other people and pour our lives into other people unless we know we're going to get a return on our investment, unless we get a profit off of it. Then we'll do it. We'll do it all the time. Even up to the marital level, there are even marriages operate on that basis. I will give as long as I get. That's where the gospel finds us. And it takes us from being an accidental living person, an accidental life, and it makes us an intentional Christian. It makes us a deliberate Christian. And that is hard. That's foreign living for us, isn't it? I mean, some of you have been Christians for a long time, some of you not, but doesn't, don't, don't, don't you catch yourself saying things you never thought you'd say? I mean, doing things you never thought you'd ever do? Being intentional and deliberate in a way that you never thought you would be? I remember the first time I forgave somebody as a Christian. I mean, I mean really forgave them too. Not like just forgot about it because it wasn't that big of a deal, but remembered that I murdered the Son of God and He forgave me for that, so... I forgive this person. I remember the first time. That was hard. The first time I confronted somebody because of their sin. I mean, where, where was the win in that for me? That was hard. I remember the first time I preached the gospel to somebody. First time I sacrificed for somebody deeply without making a big deal about it and letting them know all the, the, the length that I did to serve them. I remember the first time I did that. All of this was awkward. All of it felt foreign, but it was very, very deliberate, and it was very very intentional. This setting today, it's an interesting setting. I'm just going to build it up before we jump right in and we're about to jump in, but Paul is describing a trip he took. He's talking to a set of churches in the region of Galatia. Galatia is where we would find uh, Turkey on the map today, and he's talking to these churches and relaying the story of a big value visit that he made to Jerusalem to talk and to preach the gospel with the pastors that were there, the big A apostles, as Kevin called them last week. So Peter was there, James was probably there. There's probably a lot of high-value leaders there, and he met with them in private, and he preached the gospel. He did that because one day God spoke to him and told him to. He told him to go there and to do this very thing. At the time, this was a big value appointment and a big value meeting because there were false teachers all around the region. And what these teachers were doing is they were eroding the strength of the gospel. They were eroding the truth of the gospel because they were saying Paul and the apostles are on different pages. And Paul's on the wrong page. 
And they're all preaching different things, but Paul's like a rogue agent or something. And so that started to devalue the message that he was preaching. That's all going on right here, right in this moment. So let's just look in verse 1 and jump right in. Verse 1, Then after 14 years, Paul says, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. We're going to pause right there. We're probably going to spend most of our time right there on that one verse, believe it or not. So don't freak out, okay? Um, He brought two guys with him. Barnabas and Titus, these are two totally, totally, totally different guys. You could not be further apart than Barnabas and Titus were. I mean, probably one of the only things they had in common was just Jesus was the only thing that they had in common. Is anyone doing life in here right now in a missional community or just getting along and doing life with someone where you have absolutely nothing in common with them except for the fact that they breathe air, wear pants, and love Jesus? But besides that, man, they're in a different crowd than you all together. That is what we're talking about right here. Barnabas was a very safe guy. He was the safe guy. I mean, the Bible calls him an encourager. That was his gift, was to encourage. And everybody likes an encourager. They get invited to all the parties. But the Jews knew him. He had a great reputation. He, he was Jewish. He followed the cultures and the laws. I mean, he was an easy guy. They probably picked up the conversation from where it left off last time Barnabas was in town. Easy guy. Barnabas has actually been in the Lord longer than Paul has. Right? In fact, and we're going to substantiate this now, Barnabas was a little bit of a mentor to Paul. A little bit of a lead in his life, at least for a specific portion of it. We do know that. At least for a little bit. We never think about this. We always think that Paul is the top of the heap. And no one could ever teach Paul because Paul does nothing but teach others. But the Bible shows us something a little bit different. I'm going to turn to Acts 9. So if you're fast, go ahead and turn there in your Bible or on your app. Otherwise, it'll be up on the screen. But Acts 9, we see this. And when he, Paul, and when Paul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was as, as a disciple. Why not? Because he has been torturing and murdering Christians up until this point. Right? But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. So there was something that Barnabas heard. Paul's preaching, he's letting it rip, and Paul said something that Barnabas resonated with. He saw something. He saw a man ruined for the gospel. And so he is the one that transitioned him into the meeting with the apostles. He's the one that vouched for him and endorsed him when everybody else was afraid. He took the lead. About four chapters later, we see this in Acts 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch. Now Antioch is Paul's home church. That's his home church. Now there were in that church prophets and teachers... Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Okay, now, that's not a big deal to us. I mean, it's just a list of names. In our culture, in the Western world, a list is a list. If you're on the list, you're on the list. Whether you're first, second, or last, it doesn't really matter. But in the Hebrew culture, that was a little bit different. In the Hebrew culture, if there was a list of names and your name was in the front, that nuanced a lead position. 
right? Scholars call it the lead among equals or the first among equals, right? These men are all equal. They're all equal in the eyes of God. They all have equal mantles of prophet and teaching. They all ha- they're all leaders, but Barnabas' name is first. That's important. That showed them who was actually leading the troop, who was charting the course. And God actually says the same thing when he says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. We know that this is key because later on, after the first missionary trip, the names are swapped. It stops being everybody else and then Paul. Then it starts being Paul and then everybody else. What that shows us is that the lead had shifted. There was a mantle, a gifting, an ability on Paul where actually his name was mentioned in the first. But for at least a small amount of time, we see that Barnabas was a serious mentor. He was a leader. He was one that had a a deep voice, a, a, a voice with some mileage to Paul. He was an encouragement to Paul. And and that's really the beauty of God because if anyone needed encouragement, it was Paul and God and his brilliance put Barnabas with him, right? We think we have some bad mornings because of the skeletons in our closet. We've got nothing on Paul. He needed encouragement. God was brilliant how he did this. Paul also brought Titus very, very, very far from being Jewish. He was not the safe guy. All tatted up probably, (laughs) piercings, probably carried a whiskey flask that he drank in moderation to the glory of God, knew how to smoke pork ribs, he didn't take a literal Sabbath, he probably tailgated, wrapped everything in bacon and then ate it, just a totally different guy. He was a Gentile convert looking nothing like Barnabas, nothing like Barnabas. It's almost like Paul was picking a fight here circumcision and not looking Jewish, not being Jewish enough was the problem. (laughs) He brings Titus. Like, okay, well, I understand this is the problem, but let me introduce you to Titus, right? Who's planting churches and setting in elders, by the way. Who's doing the work of the ministry, and his gospel sounds just as spot on as yours does. He brings him. I love this. It's a really big meeting right here. Paul was a mentor and a leader in Titus's life. In fact, in the, in the letter that he writes to Titus, he calls him his true child in the common faith. And it's Titus that is going back and forth between Paul and the Corinthian church. You see it in 2 Corinthians. He's the one going back and forth, back and forth, carrying letters, carrying news, getting money, putting out fires, teaching, handling squabbles, putting good doctrine in. That's all Titus. And Paul was over it. Titus looks a lot like Paul, and he learned at Paul's side, right? I mean, no doubt. I mean, what we see right here in this very first verse of chapter 2, we see three levels of intentional mentoring, three levels of very good deliberate coaching and pastoring and investment. We see it from Barnabas to Paul, and we see it from Paul to Titus. No doubt Titus was the beneficiary of very good coaching because Paul got some very good coaching from Barnabas. It's really neat how God has done this. And I will tell you, this is a very biblical model for us when it comes to teaching and mentoring and disciple-making, coaching, leading, investing. This is a very biblical model for us. It has always been God's primary venue and vehicle for teaching to be through people. Good, honest, genuine, vulnerable, life-on-life person-to-person discipleship. That is how God's model was always set up, not a workbook. Workbooks are great. Podcasts are great. 
but they're supplemental to God's primary vehicle, which is life on life. Listen, if anyone in this room would love there not to be any personal contact and growth, it would be me. I'd be in a cave with a workbook and a podcast going, and I'd be totally fine. And there's nothing wrong with those things. But God is using people here. I mean, let me show you in 1 Timothy 2. This is Paul talking to another disciple, another child in the Lord. He calls him, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what, do you, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So you see four generations there. Paul talking to Timothy and teaching Timothy. Timothy investing into faithful men and faithful men investing into whoever they have the opportunity to invest into. And that's the model. And I don't think this totally bothers us, by the way, what I'm talking about. I don't think it's that controversial. I think we actually like being mentored and invested in. I think everybody in here appreciates being invested into and and taught and led and mentored and coached. We just like it at a distance, don't we? We We like it, but we like it this far away. I mean, that's why we like books and podcasts. That's why we like to do it on our own, because... Those guys can't call you out. Matt Chandler doesn't know you. Mark Driscoll does not know me. These guys don't know you. John Piper might not ever meet you. And they can't just call you up and say, hey, look, that was a good book, huh? Yeah, thanks, John. That was a great book. Yeah, you need to read chapter 3 again, especially page 39. You need to read it six times and then go repent to your wife and then come back and write a book report on it. And then we'll talk about it again next week. That's never going to happen to you, friend. I'd like it to. My flesh does not like people to be that close to me, to mentor me. Because I don't want them to see my junk. I don't want them to see my trash at all. And if I do want them to see my junk, just the safe junk. <laughs> just the easy stuff. That, that's okay if they see that, but not, not the big skeletons in the back of the closet. I don't want them to see that. Because then they won't think of me the same way anymore. They won't regard me as they once did. I think it's not just that we like to be mentored at a distance. When it comes to us teaching and mentoring and discipling, I think we like to do that at a distance too, right? We like to do that. We like to hear problems, but not all of your problems, right? Because whatever you tell me, the deep and dark stuff, that's going to stick to me. That's going to get me dirty. I'd like to keep the gloves on and keep it sanitized. Can we just keep it normal? Can it just be a situation where I just give you advice and kind of like advise you and not invest too much in you? Because after all, you might hurt me. You might not appreciate what I'm investing in you. I don't want to leave myself out there like that. So we keep it at a distance. We put a space, a delta between us and the person we're pouring into. This level of coaching, shepherding, and doing life on life, man, it requires a lot of intentionality, a lot of deliberate living. And that is the number one reason it is so hard and it fails. I cannot tell you how many times in the last 15 years I've heard people say, Luke, what I really need is a coach in my life, a discipler, someone to help me untie the knots, a mentor, a pastor, somebody, someone I could talk to, someone I could be real with. I just need somebody to help me, to form me, to coach me, to prepare me, to equip me. Well, have you asked somebody? No. Like we have speed dating here or something. Like we line up all the coaches on one side and all the train wrecks on the other, and every two minutes we hit a a buzzer until we find someone that matches well with you, and then we set it up for you in this professional way. We're not going to do that. No church does that. 
What you should do is you should pray. And look at the landscape of community. Is there somebody that sticks out? Somebody that God has bookmarked? Someone that might have something that you need, or maybe they've been in a place in life that you think you're headed to, and you think, maybe that person could help me, coach me, pastor me, mentor me as to where I'm going and what I'm in right now. Ask them. Ask them. Make it easy on them. Hey, can we meet? Can you help me through some things? I feel like God is wanting me to ask you about this, but if not, that's fine. That's something that we don't set up. I think, I think we expect it to just come accidentally. It's not going to happen, friend. That's not going to happen. I mean, in the business world, we have business coaches. In the sports world, we have, we have quarterback coaches. We have all kinds of coaches. We have life coaches now, whatever that is. We have them, right? But when it comes to looking a lot like Jesus, we just expect it to just happen outside of relationship, outside of intentionality. So let me ask you, is someone coaching you right now, mentoring you? Is someone mentoring you and walking through life and investing in you right now? Do they know it? Are they aware of that? Or would it be kind of news to them? I mean, does their voice have depth? Do they have the pass to ask you deep, vulnerable, and hard questions? And then whenever you're done answering them, do they have a right to ask you if you're lying? It's important, isn't it? I see the weight of it. And this is actually the easiest of the two roles to be mentored and invested in because we like that. But what about investing in others? What if we switched gears for a little bit? Are you investing in somebody else? Is anyone in here investing and in pouring their life and mentoring and coaching another? And do they know that? I mean, does your voice have weight with them? Does it permeate? Does it have gravity to it? Do you follow up? Do you pray for them? Or does it just sound like advice? Very tired advice that they could probably get in a book from Walmart. Listen, if God has not given you somebody to pour your life into, pray and ask him to, and he will. Ask him to show you somebody. Ask him to introduce you to somebody and watch how long it takes for him to do it. Ask. And I know what some of you are thinking, but Luke, that just feels so presumptuous. To just roll into somebody's life and say, hey there, I notice you're kind of a mess. <laughs> but if you haven't noticed, I've got my head on in this little department right here. I could probably help you now that I think about it. What do you think about that? You want to meet? It sounds weird. It, it, might, it might be a little awkward. You might lack on style points on that. But listen, they need it, friends. They need it. It's okay. Just do it and get over it. They need it. I, man, it's been valuable to me. I remember the first time someone took the initiative, was intentional and deliberate with me in that. And I did not ask for their opinion. I didn't ask for it. But I remember them stepping into my life and saying, Luke, listen, I notice you act a little bit like a clown. <laughs> Which I can. If you know me, you're like, yes, he is a clown. But Luke, they said, no one follows clowns anywhere except to the circus. If you want to lead people into battle, you've got to quit acting like a clown all the time. It's okay to clown around, not okay to be a clown, right? And at first I'm thinking, okay, thanks for your conscience. I don't even know who you are, man. But after a while, I started asking them things and get, because I knew that they were going to be deliberate with my life and intentional. Then it became how I talked to my wife and how I read the Bible and how I handled my time. Man, that was more precious than diamonds to me. 
much more precious. I think Christians today, they expect leadership to pick up the slack here, church leadership. Like we're going to hire some select professional few that are going to do all the work and invest in you, right? First of all, that's not even biblical. We couldn't even pull it off, even if that was our strategy. We couldn't, but there's too many of you. The quality would be miserable, right? Second of all, it would rip you off. It would cost you and your path to look a lot more like Jesus. I mean, think about Jesus investing, coaching, discipling, mentoring, pastoring, investing his life in other people, even though the return on the prophet never really came in his lifetime, right? They swung back at him. They had an issue with it. They didn't do well with it. But he poured and he poured and he didn't hold back. And he invested and he invested and he didn't hold back. And here it is, we want to look like Jesus and we're pouring into no one a lot of the time. Listen, if you really want to look like Jesus, I mean, if you really want to look like Jesus, start praying that God would set it up to where you're pouring your life into somebody. Pour your life into somebody and you'll feel what it feels like to give, to hurt, to bleed. And I know what some of you are thinking. But Luke, I'm not where I need to be. I'm not where I need to be. I'm not where I need to be enough to teach somebody else, to lead somebody else. (laughs) I'm not either. I'm not either. Welcome to the big fat club of people who are not where they want to be in life. But you are always going to be ahead of the tracks on somebody. You're always going to be more mature than somebody. Heck, if you're a new Christian and you're still figuring stuff out, there's a lot of people out there that are very far from Jesus. There is somebody to mentor. There is somebody to coach. Somebody. This is hard because the reason we struggle with this is we like to hold on to our privacy and we like to hold on to our comfort. Those are the two things that make a deliberate and intentional life um, start to do this, right? Hey, man. What's my business is my business, and what's your business is your business. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we could do life together. We're on the same plane, going the same direction, but eyes forward, right? I mean, what's yours is yours, and what's mine is mine, but the gospel changes that, doesn't it? Doesn't the gospel recover lone islands just floating around out there and knit us into a body that is so tight, it's hard to tell where one starts and another stops, We're knit together. We're connected together. Where now we live a life where your business is my business. And my business is your business. And the decisions we make do more than just affect ourselves. The big decisions we make in life, they affect everybody. All of us. The big decisions you make, it affects community. But we hold on to it. Listen, whenever you take the just deep delight in what God has done for mankind... Whenever you were just satisfied in the fact that God, because we were so sleazy and dirty, has sent us an ultimate coach, the pinnacle of all teachers and mentors, the biggest investor in mankind, whenever you get your arms around that and you're fascinated with it and you're delighted in it, then you you don't care about comfort. You don't care about getting your hands dirty in someone else's life. I mean, it's no comfort to you if mankind acts well and you don't have to work very hard. You don't mind getting dirty because another acted well because you couldn't. Another one was a good performer because you never could perform. And you take your comfort in that. So you're easily getting your hands in the lives of other people, even if they swing back at you. And the secrecy we hold on to in order to keep our lives private, right? What kind of identity are we holding on to? Martin Luther says that we carry around us the cloak of Christianity or the cloak of Jesus, meaning that when Jesus or when God sees us, he sees the value placed on the life of Jesus. We're wearing the identity of Christ himself. 
What, what on earth could man add to that? What is it that we're holding on to so tightly? Listen, this is a heavy situation. Paul is walking into something that is not light and easy, but when he walks into this big pothole, he's got a coach on one side and a young man in the other. He's got a guy that would just grab his arm whenever he was getting real heated. I could see Paul kind of talking like this. I could do this sometimes, you know? You get on your toes. I could see him doing that and getting louder and louder, and I could just see Barnabas grabbing his arm a little bit, like, hey, bro, hey. Same team, we're all doing good. And then I could just see Titus with his eyes really big and bright, like, oh my goodness, this is happening right now. But he needed to learn because he'd probably do it again years later. It's a beautiful thing that God is doing. I have to go on. Is everyone just scared to death I'm going to take 15 minutes to preach every verse in here? I know y'all thought about it. I'm not. Verse 2, I went up because of a revelation and set before them though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Okay, I'd like to make a few things clear before we get to verse 3, and that's just that Paul was not called into the front office at headquarters to clear up a miscommunication. It's not going on. They didn't even beckon him. They didn't even ask for him to come, and he didn't show up to make everybody happy. He only showed up because God told him to go. Had God not told him in a revelation to go, he might not have gone. And and why did he go, by the way? Why did he do this? These guys, Peter, James, they already knew the gospel. He didn't have to check in with them. They're not his boss. It's not like he was trying to make sure that he was preaching the right thing. Like here, okay, just in case you want to know, this is what I've been preaching. Tell me if it's right. How's that sound? He'd been preaching it for 14 years by this point. 14 years. In fact, he was so certain it was the right gospel that last week and last chapter, what did he say? If anyone preaches anything different than what I'm preaching right now, they could be cursed. Done. This is it. If they don't agree with me, tough. So what is he doing? He was setting the gospel before people. He was setting the gospel before these apostles and providing everyone watching, false teachers, church, new Christians, old Christians, non-Christians. He was showing everybody that we are one church on one page, but we're showing up in many places, talking to many different people in many different contexts, but we're using one singular gospel. There are no rogue agents. Me and Peter are saying the same things to different people at different times. That's what's going on here. Otherwise, they're running in vain. Not just Paul, by the way, all of them running in vain. Look at verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. That means that Paul got his point across. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them... We did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Okay, circumcision. They did not force Titus to be circumcised. Circumcision, I'm going to make it real simple for you. It's a cultural artifact, right? It's a cultural artifact that the Judaizers were saying was necessary for men to become Christians. That it wasn't good enough to just love Jesus. It wasn't good enough for Jesus on the cross. You had to add an act to it. It was obedience to get circumcised, and then you were a Christian, right? That's what's going on right here. Circumcision 
was not a bad thing. Circumcision was a good thing. It was actually instituted by God in the Old Testament many, many, many years before as an outward sign of what God was doing in his nation and what he will do on the cross, right? Circumcision is an outward sign of this is a people set apart, not like the other nations. And not just a nation, but a nation that will be multiplied. That's why it was done on a sexual organ and not like an ear piercing or a tattoo, which would have been a lot easier, right? (laughs) But it was a multiplied people unto himself and it pointed to the cross because when would the last circumcision be necessary to be connected to god it would be not when our flesh is torn and cut but when jesus's flesh is torn and cut and blood was spilt it's the last necessary circumcision and now no longer is a circumcision an outward thing but it's an inward thing and the prophets talked about this all the time that's why they said oh jews circumcise your hearts that you wouldn't be stubborn anymore? Paul says later on, and this won't be on the screen, but Paul says in Romans 2, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. No longer is circumcision done on the outside of us. But in Titus, the Bible talks about a regeneration that occurs in us when we become Christians, where an old heart is cut out and a new beating heart is put in. And that is done by the power of the Spirit. That's what he's talking about right here. But these Judaizers were making circumcision back in style. And they were bringing it back and making it a requirement. Again, Paul's not against circumcision. He's fine with it. He's fine with it. He's not fine with it being necessary to be saved. Not cool with that. Now, to draw a straight line to us, we do the same thing today. We don't choose circumcision necessarily, but we have our own cultural artifacts, do we not? We have our own neutral things that we make necessary things. We have our own amoral, okay, good things that we make required things in order to get grace from God or favor from God. Things like keeping a literal Sabbath from midnight to midnight on whatever day of the week you want to say. I don't even care what day of the week it is. A literal Sabbath. Is, is, is a Sabbath a bad thing? Sabbaths are a good thing. I take one. I love Sabbaths, but you know what? A Sabbath didn't bleed out on a cross for me. Didn't do it. Baptism. Baptism's a great thing. We love it. We're all about baptism, but baptism did not rise from the dead in a tomb. Listen, there are entire groups of people that believe that you are not a Christian until you've gone through the act of the performance of going in the water, coming up, the Holy Spirit comes down, and that's when you become a Christian. We obviously don't believe that here. We believe that you become a Christian when God regenerates your heart and quickens you into justification. That's what we believe. These are good things, though. Giving of time, giving of money, evangelism, attendance. These are all good things. But they can't be required things to get you grace, to get you favor from God. They can't be things that we offer up to God and say, see God, look what I'm doing. I'm doing these works and these performance items. I'm I'm trying really hard. They're inadequate. They're totally insufficient. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came. Listen, we read something like circumcision on this, and I think sometimes we wonder how stupid these Judaizers were. (sighs) How stupid? Why would you guys hold on to a piece of the law? Jesus has come. I don't have to do that anymore. And if all the things that you'd hold on to, why would you hold on to that? It's so easy for us to do that. And we're doing it every day. 
It's just that it's not circumcision for us. It's acts. It's performance. It's working. It's shame-based obedience. Things that we do are things that we don't do in order that we can just kind of glance up every now and then and wonder, does he like me more now than he did before I did this or didn't do this? Does he give me more grace now? Listen, if your actions, if it's your actions that get you grace and favor, then Jesus' actions don't matter for you. They don't. They're null. They're void. But if it is Jesus' work that gives your work value, we're talking about something totally different. Now listen, your works, I have to say this, I have to say it, I hate balancing statements, I don't, I don't like doing that, but your works, your actions are not useless. They're not useless. They're not unnecessary. They glorify a king. Whenever I take a Sabbath, whenever I rest from work, whenever I do that, and I take some time Whatever that time might be, because it's supposed to serve me, whenever I take that time, it glorifies a king. Whenever I give deeply in a jaw-dropping manner out of my bank account, it glorifies the king. Whenever I attend things where people, where saints are together and do community, it glorifies a king. It just doesn't improve my place before God. Those are two totally different things. Paul was being accused of saying that works don't matter. He wasn't saying that. They do matter. He was just saying that it is Jesus' work that even gives your work value. If you don't put your trust in the work that Jesus did, and you put your trust in the work that you do, then Jesus' work has no value to you. You're on your own. You're doomed. That's what he's saying, and he's fighting for it tooth and nail. Listen, this is some not, not some archaic argument from circa 40 A.D. It is in Knoxville today, this morning, in your heart, and it is in my heart as well. And good news is, is the gospel frees us from whatever our version of circumcision is, whatever it is. The gospel frees us from that. The gospel frees you and makes it okay for you to get dirty and invest in somebody else's life. The gospel makes it okay for you to be vulnerable and pull the closet open and let all the light in and let somebody else see you. It says it's okay. It actually also says the gospel makes it okay for you to invest your life into a culture that will not give back to you like you would like. That's what we're going to read here in verse 6 as we finish the chapter. Verse 6, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. Because God shows no part. <laughs> Doesn't it sound like he's ramping things up like he's being a jerk there? <laughs> what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. He's just saying that I was, a, I was an apostle big A before I came. The gospel that I preached was true before I came. What, that meeting didn't add anything to this whole thing. My, my posture and my message. That's all he's saying. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me to mind to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. What you have here is nothing more than textbook, classic, contextual missions work. Contextual just means matching the fabric of the community at the time, just in a nutshell. 
That's what we see happening here. Hey, you guys go over and reach these people over here because it makes sense to you, and we'll come over here and we'll reach these people over here because it makes sense to me, and God has given us a mantle for each, right? Now, they'll preach to anybody, right? They'll preach to anybody, but there is a sweet spot for them. There is a place where their voice has depth, and they're seeing fruit, and that's their context. So ask yourself as you read that, what, what is your context as a Christian, as a missionary? And we've talked at length in the past that every Christian is a missionary or an imposter. Now, that's, that's, those aren't my words. Those are Spurgeon's words. But we all do know we are, we are missionaries as we are Christians. What is your context? What is your context? Are you being deliberate? Are you being intentional with your context? Or are you being accidental? Just kind of wondering if someone's going to open up a conversation that you can talk to them about it. That's usually what it looks like. What does that look like for you? Luke, I don't know what my context would look like. It's your everyday life. Your boring, predictable, everyday, routine-laden life. That's your context. And you're going to do a lot better job in that context than I ever could. It makes more sense to you than it would make to me. You're the better missionary. Listen, we, we can't do missions work to Knoxville through you instead of you. It's got to be done by you. Right? It takes intentionality, though. It takes a deliberate nature in all of us to bring a gospel in a relatable and clear form that other people understand. To the people in your rhythms, in your patterns, in the rooms you occupy, in the halls you walk through, in the conversation you find yourself in. Listen, those are your Gentiles. Those are your context. That is your field. And they all have their version of circumcision that they trust in. All of them. Those are the ones you were called to meet with the good news. Listen, the reason that people are not becoming radically recovered by the gospel is not because preachers stink. <laughs> Even though a lot do. A lot of us do. But it's not because the pulpit stink in Knoxville that Knoxville is not changing. That's not the case. It's because there's a radical breakdown in contextual missions. There's a radical breakdown in being contextual and making sense with the gospel we bring to people in a relatable way in which they can understand. Usually we fail because we don't preach, A, and when we do preach, we don't make any sense. We're like speaking a different language or we're answering questions they're not even asking. That's what we see. All right, verse 10. I didn't do verse 10, my bad. Verse 10. Only they asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. Okay, now there's some scattered opinion on this, not like it really matters for us today. We have to remember that the Jewish church was very, 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 very poor, right? So the other churches of the region would take up money and send it with Titus and Paul and Barnabas. They'd send it to those hurting Christians in in Jerusalem. They probably brought money with them on this visit, this second visit. There was likely a check that they brought with them, okay? So they might have been saying, hey, hey, as you guys leave, don't forget about us. We're eating ramen noodles back here. We don't even have money for a microwave. We're just eating it, you know. Don't forget about us. Send a check in the mail, P.O. box, you know, whatever, whatever. Or they were saying, no matter where you go, don't forget about poor people. Either way, for us today, it doesn't matter. The punchline is, is we are the poor people. We are the poor. Listen, the reason we give to poor, the reason we give to the marginalized of society or the Section 8 housing populace of Knoxville, the reason that we do that is not because it's the nice thing to do. 
We don't do it because we have it and they don't, so that's just the right thing to do. We do it because it symbolizes and it looks like the gospel and the fact that we were poor recipients of a generous wealth offering. That we received wealth abounding into us when we didn't deserve it and we were never going to repay it. It's the beautiful thing to do. It's the most gospel-soaked action a church can take. It's to pour money, pour resources, pour time into a hurting community. That's why we do it. You, you are the poor. I mean, listen, today, some of you, the gospel finds you very poor. The gospel finds you misbehaving. The gospel finds you accidental in your living. And the gospel finds you radically poor. And you have no ability to increase your wealth. None. You don't have any... Be- I mean, the best attempts you've ever come up with to provide a wealth to show God that you're worthy, you, you have totally failed. Right? So the gospel finds you poor. Here in just a little bit, we're going to take communion... And that's where as a church, we come together and we rally around the elements that symbolize a broken body and a spilt life, a spilt blood for us to rescue us, to recover us, and to knit us and adopt us in the family. But listen, if you are not a Christian, if you are far from Christ, we're not inviting you to take communion. We're inviting you to take Jesus Christ instead. We're inviting you to take that gospel and make it part of your life. That's a different invitation. It requires repentance. It requires a deliberate action made. Some of you are waiting for a Barnabas to roll up. You need someone to coach you. You need someone to encourage you. Right? I would ask for you to pray. It might not be a prayer you're used to praying. Ask God for a mentor. Ask God for a coach and see what God tells you. See what God shows you in that. It might be right under your nose. And then whenever God shows you one and you start to develop a relationship where someone is pouring in and mentoring you and investing in you, be honest, be vulnerable, and they might stink at it at first. It might be a little hard. But don't, I mean, be open. Let them work. Some of you, you need a Titus. You need a person to pour into. I'd ask you to pray for one as well. Maybe they don't even know Jesus. Luke, I didn't know that you can disciple lost people. Heck yeah. You disciple them right towards the cross. Teach them to be more like Jesus. It's the same thing. Coach them. Mentor them. Untie their knots. And then I'd ask you to pour your life in as Jesus did. Because he never helped.